Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am your intrepid podcast host, Ken Levine. Thanks so much for listening this week. And uh, this week, I want to do my salute to Vin Scully, who was a longtime Dodger broadcaster. He broadcast the Dodgers for 67 years. And I'm sure by this time, even if you're not a baseball fan, you probably have heard the news about Vin Scully. Uh, he was also a, a national sportscaster, did a lot of World Series, and did the NFL on CBS. So, uh, you know, this is a, a, a major name. And uh, he died a few weeks ago. And you may be saying, well, so why are you doing this now? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, number one... Uh, I didn't want to compete with all of the other tributes, and all the other tributes, I think, are a little bit different because they all have highlights and they all talk about his great calls and you know how he shut up and let the crowd go and that sort of thing. And I want mine to sort of be unique and personal so you get a much better feel for who I think uh, he was. <laughs> and I say that because he was such a nice guy, but it was really hard to get super close to him. Still, I treasure the relationship that I had, and I'm going to be happy to share it with you. And the second reason is, you know, if I did this like the week that he passed away, I don't think I could have gotten through it. So I needed a little time to just sort of process it myself. So that's what we're going to talk about this week, the uh, legacy and the legend of Vin Scully. And I start by saying nobody has had a greater impact on my life, other than my father, than Vin Scully. Vin Scully basically taught me my love of sports, certainly my love of baseball, love of storytelling, and in many ways... Yeah, kind of my love of being a writer. So we go back to 1958, which was the first year that the Dodgers came to Los Angeles, and I'm a little kid, and I'm in the little breakfast nook that we had in our tiny G.I. Bill home in Reseda, California, and my dad is listening on a transistor radio to a ball game. And I said, well, what's, who's that? And he goes, that's Vin Scully. And I go, who's Vin Scully? Well, he's the announcer for the Dodgers. And I sat down and I started listening. And within like 15 minutes, I was like enthralled. And I was one of those kids. I liked baseball, but I was not good at it. I was terrible. So any dream of becoming a major league ball player was squelched by the time I was six or seven. And yet, very early on in listening to Vince Scully, I thought to myself, hey, this is how I could get to the big leagues. 
essentially you're like playing a game, you're involved in every play, and you get to go at someone else's expense to all of these exotic cities, places like Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and Milwaukee. Wow, Philadelphia. It was unbelievable. St. Louis in the summer, and somebody else was paying for it. I mean, this has to be the greatest job of all time. So I became a huge Dodger fan, as did most people in Los Angeles. And I think it was a combination of three things that uh, contributed to that. Number one was the fact that it was the dawning of the transistor radio. Prior to that, of course, radios were these big clunky tube things, but with the introduction of transistor radios, they became portable. So you could take a transistor radio that was the size of a cigarette pack and you could go anywhere with it. I mean, who knew that someday there would be something similar and it would be a phone. But at the time, this was a miracle having this transistor radio. The Dodgers, when they began in L.A., they knew they wanted to build their own stadium, but it would uh, require an interim period of three or four years until the stadium was built. And, of course, the whole uh, building of Dodger Stadium and getting the land and everything, that, that's a whole other story that I don't want to get into here. But it meant that the Dodgers had to play the first four seasons in Los Angeles in the Los Angeles Coliseum. Now, the Coliseum, which was built for like the 1936 Olympics, is a football stadium and a track stadium. It seats close to 100,000 people, but it was not meant for baseball. And as a result of that, you had 90,000 seats, and maybe 28 of them were good. Where <laughs> You had an actual really good vantage point of the field. And it was so huge and cavernous. I mean, you would be sitting way out in left field, or in some cases, beyond center field, and the players were just dots. They were just ants. So people brought their transistor radios just to be able to follow the game, and they fell in love with Vin Scully because the other factor was Vin Scully was so good and did such a great job of explaining the game that he really taught people of Los Angeles all about baseball. And it also helped. The first year the Dodgers came to L.A., they were pretty terrible. Basically, they were over the hill, and they had like a lot of the old uh, Brooklyn Dodger boys from summer, Duke Snyder, Gil Hodges, Pee Wee Reese, Carl Ferrillo, a lot of those old guys, because they figured, uh, okay, at least the people in L.A. will get a chance to see famous Dodgers. Well, after that first year when they finished seventh of eight teams in the National League, they went out and got new players. And in 1959, they actually made a run for the pennant and eventually won the World Series, which was amazing to win the World Series the second year in Los Angeles. But we, as a, as a city, was absolutely enthralled in listening to Vin Scully calling these games 
once you got into the home stretch. And back then, Walter O'Malley, who owned the team, worried that since people had to drive to the Coliseum, and the Coliseum was not such an attractive place anyway, and there was no reason to buy tickets in advance, because with 90,000 seats, you could always grab a seat. You always show up the night of the game and get a seat. But he figured, if we put these games on television, and nobody's going to come to the Coliseum and watch them. So the Dodgers only televised the games that were up in San Francisco, which meant 9 or 11, depending upon the season and the schedule. And the rest of the time, the only way you could follow the Dodgers on a nightly basis was through radio. And so Vince Scully, who did seven of the nine innings a night, Jerry Doggett did the other two, uh, you heard his voice everywhere. I mean, you would go down the street and it would be coming out of apartments. It would be coming out of store windows. You would go to the beach and it would be like it was on a PA system. You could hear the broadcast. Same was true in the Coliseum and eventually at Dodger Stadium because people got so used to bringing their radios that that became a habit. And when the Dodgers moved to Dodger Stadium in 1962, that habit followed and you could hear Vin Scully almost as if, like I said, he was on a public address system. You could even hear it on the field. And I remember one time Don Sutton, who was a Dodger pitcher at the time, uh, was saying he was on the mound. It's like the seventh inning, and they're playing the Pittsburgh Pirates. And Wilbur Stargell comes up to the plate. And he could hear Scully going, well, Don Sutton is uh, really laboring here, and the tank is almost empty. And Wilbur Stargell coming up now owns this guy. He's hitting like 432 against Sutton. And Sutton's reaction was like, fuck you, fuck you, God damn it. So uh, you could hear Vince Scully on the field. And uh, he always worked alone. By the way, a lot of this is just kind of off the top of my head, so it may seem a little disjointed. But I didn't really want to prepare anything. I just wanted this to just sort of be from the heart from me to you. And Scully really didn't need a analyst. Uh, he knew more than the players and he was able to articulate things much better than the players ever could. And I remember as a kid, you know, at night, especially on AM, you can pick up signals from faraway stations because the ionosphere rises and radio signals which bounce off the ionosphere suddenly skip and bounce into uh, farther locations. I hope that's a good explanation for it. And I could pick up the giant broadcast from a station in Sacramento. So from time to time, especially when the Dodgers and Giants were in a pennant race, I would listen to the giant broadcast, and their announcer was Russ Hodges. And with all apologies to Giant fans, I thought to myself, oh my God, how... Lucky am I 
that I have Vin Scully and not this guy because Scully made the game just come alive and Russ Hodges was just a nuts and bolts play-by-play guy. Ironically, though those are all those years uh, in Los Angeles when I thought, man, we have so much better uh, broadcasters than the Giants. Now, it's completely the opposite. The Giant announcers are so far superior to the Dodgers announcer. The radio announcers of John Miller and Dave Fleming are outstanding. Uh, Dwayne Kuyper and Mike Kruko on TV. Uh, Krupp and Kuyper, one of the best TV duos. Giants have a great broadcasting team. And the Dodgers, mm, not so much. You know, 67 years of Vin Scully. Um, yeah, it, it just didn't continue. I finally got a chance to meet him in 1969. I, at the time, was a sports intern. I was at UCLA, and I was a sports intern at a full-service radio station in L.A., KMPC. I talked about KMPC last week when I mentioned how Gary Owens was the afternoon disc jockey. But uh, at KMPC, I was in the sports department. And one day I asked our sports director, Steve Bailey, is there a chance that I could get a press pass one night to see a Dodger game from the press box? And he said, okay, and he arranged it for me. So I went to the press box, and uh, I, I saw Scully like about, half hour, 45 minutes before the game. And I came up and I introduced myself. And uh, and I was working at KMPC and blah, blah, blah. So, I, you know, I tried to sound like I was somewhat in the business. And I said to him, would you mind if at some point tonight I came in the booth and just watched you work? And I remember he said, well, I don't know why you want to just sit and watch some guy jawing in front of a microphone, but okay, come on in after the third inning. So I'm sitting in the press section, and I'm just like hoping, you know, that the game just moves like a shot, like just swing at the next pitch, just ground out, make out, let's get through these first three innings. So at the end of three innings, I go into the radio booth, and I'm standing in the back, And Jerry Doggett, who was his partner who had done the third inning, finished the inning and got up and and left. And Scully turns back and he sees me and he points to Jerry's chair. Like, you can sit here. So it's like, okay. So I go and I sit in Jerry Doggett's chair and Scully is calling the game and I'm like, this is surreal. Like, oh my God. I'm sitting next to Vin Scully, and there was a play at the plate, and a guy was out at the plate, and Scully had typical great call, you know, and he is out at the plate. Oh, my goosebumps. It was like shivers down my spine, you know, like, oh, my God, like somebody hit me with a taser uh, sitting next to him, hearing him 
call that play. So that was my first meeting with Vin Scully. And then in the mid-80s is when, you know, like I said, I always wanted to be a play-by-play announcer, and I figured if I don't pursue it now, I never will. So I would go to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium and try to learn how to do play-by-play. By now, you're talking the 80s, um, people had Walkman, they had headphones, so people listened to the broadcast, but most of them had headphones, so it's not as if his voice was swirling around the stadium as it had been in the 50s and 60s. So I was able to do games without uh, that interference. And the thing was very tough. Well, it's not easy to learn how to do play-by-play anyway, but it's very tough not to imitate him. And I heard him say in an interview when he was starting out, and he was doing the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he was hired by Red Barber, and Red Barber had a southern accent, was very folksy. And Scully said, uh, at one point, a friend of his said, why are you sounding like the South? And Scully goes, what are you talking about? He says, like, you're dropping all your G's. So it's like, uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm walking, and, uh, you know, he said, it it just sort of seeped in. So I had to, like, make sure I'm from the North and Red Barber is from the South. So that was kind of my fear, too, is like, okay, I got to learn how to do play-by-play, and I can't imitate Vin Scully. Because you would hear this. Uh, I would hear, especially minor league announcers, again, because I would DX and I would tune around and I found games. And I remember the Albuquerque Dukes, which was the AAA affiliate of the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers, was on a station KOB at 770, and they had a big signal, and I could hear those games. And their announcer, it was like a sketch. This guy was imitating Vin Scully on the two, two pitches low. This just sounded ridiculous. So I wanted to make sure that whatever personality I had came through on the broadcast that I didn't sound like Vin Scully calling a ball game. I will say, though, there were two things that I took from him or stole. Number one was the ability to communicate one-to-one. You know, Scully always sounded like he was talking to you. And part of the reason for that is that he never had an analyst. He always worked alone. And so that's one of the reasons why I don't have a co-host on this podcast. Because if I have a co-host, then it's just you listening in on a conversation. You know, you're just at a party and you're standing off to the side while two people are talking. But without a co-host, it's just me talking directly to you. That's something I got from Vin Scully. And the other thing, now this is a complete steal, is one day Scully noticed, he's calling the game, and he noticed that 
it was the home plate umpire, Frank Sicori's birthday. And so he said, you know what, at the count of three, why doesn't everybody yell, happy birthday, Frank? And he counted out, one, two, three, and the ballpark erupted. 50,000 people yelling, happy birthday, Frank, which shocked him and the players kind of out of their shoes. And he told me afterwards, he said, you know, I did that, but I thought to myself, as I was counting it down, what if nobody does this? (laughs) I am really leading with my chin. But of course, everybody did. And he did a similar thing once when there was some question as to uh, a pitcher having to set for one full second, uh, otherwise it was a balk. And he was saying, do you have any idea how long a second is? He says, I have a stopwatch, and I'm going to say one, and when you think a second has passed, say two. And he did one. And suddenly the entire stadium erupts with two. So it's the power that he had. That's what I stole. When I was in Seattle, I would do stuff because I tried to get the audience to bring radios to the ballpark. And I would do things like saying, okay, when I count to three, if you have a radio, stand up. And I count to three, and 15,000, 16,000 people scattered around the ballpark would just stand up. And, of course, everybody else would look at these people like, what are you doing? What's going on here? And I would say, see, you got to bring a radio just to see what insanity I'm going to do every night. Uh, but that's something that, that I stole from Vin Scully. There was a day, Ron Fairley, who was uh, an announcer for the Dodgers and a long, announcer for uh, the Mariners, excuse me, um, never for the Dodgers, um, but he was a longtime player for the Dodgers back in the 50s and 60s. He told me the story that in the final game of 1965, the Dodgers had clinched the pennant. It's a game that meant nothing. Sunday afternoon. And manager Walter Alston said to Vin, you get to manage. You just tell me what moves you want me to make, and and I will make them. And he had a transistor radio in the dugout. So Ron Fairley said that the night before, Alston said, you're not playing tomorrow. Um, You can go out and have a nice night because you're not playing. He said, so I went out and, you know, I got plastered. And I came in on Sunday morning and I was really hungover. And Austin comes up to me and he goes, oh, listen, uh, I hate to do this to you, but uh, the guy who was slated to play first base uh, pulled a hamstring or whatever, and I'm going to need you to be in the starting lineup at first base. Uh, okay. He said, so in like the fourth inning, I get a base hit, and I'm standing at first, and Scully says on the radio, 
to Walter Alston, put the steal sign on, have him steal. Fairly said, I've never stolen a base. (laughs) Five, six years, I don't think I've ever stolen a base. Maybe I was in the second part of a double steal, but I've never just stolen a base. And he said, when I saw the sign, I like looked curiously and I, okay, there must be some mistake. And I didn't go. And the pitch was low or whatever. And Scully said, no, again, I, I want him to steal. And he got the steal sign and fairly went like, okay. <laughs> and he took off for second base and the catcher was so startled that he didn't even throw down there. And so he got his one stolen base. Uh, it was, you know, Scully just getting a chance to have some fun. I met him again in 1991. This was my first year with the Orioles. We were in spring training in Florida, and there was a midweek game when the Orioles played the Dodgers in Vero Beach. We weren't broadcasting that game. We were pretty much just broadcasting on the weekends in the early part of spring training in 1991. But I drove myself to Vero Beach because I wanted to meet Vin Scully. And sure enough, there he was. And I, by now I had my own press pass and I introduced myself as, you know, the Orioles announcer and mentioned I had met him, yada, yada, and sat with him for like about a half an hour. And we were just exchanging information about our teams. And I thought to myself, oh my God, Vince Scully is treating me like I'm a peer. (laughs) It's like, how amazing is that? So I got a chance to sit with him in the booth again and watched him as just a, you know, a geeky fanboy. But uh, that was truly amazing. Um, I did Dodger talk in the late 90s and then for three years from 2008 through 2010. And I got to know him a little better then because I got a chance to work alongside of him. And like I said in my written tribute, every day I'd be in the press box and Scully would come by and you'd go, hi, Kenny. And it was like, oh, my God, the prettiest girl in school knows my name. And I didn't get a chance to know him that well at the stadium because for dinner, there's the press lounge, but there was like a separate smaller room where all of the Dodger broadcasters ate. However, on the road, and I did some traveling with the Dodgers, on the road, yeah, you would be in the press lounge And he would take his tray and he would sit down right next to you and you could have dinner with Vince Scully. And the great thing was we didn't just talk baseball. He was fascinated in the television industry and what I did there. And uh, we also talked a lot about Broadway plays and musicals. He was very much into the theater, uh, very much into books. Uh, I once asked him, what do you do on the road all the time? You know, you've been going on the road now for a gazillion years. 
And he said most of the time he stays in his hotel room and reads. He said there are some cities, especially earlier on in his career, that he would bring his golf clubs and he would, you know, play golf. And I said, so is there any city in the National League that would surprise me that you really liked? And he said, yeah, Cincinnati. And he always liked Cincinnati. He liked the golf courses. He liked the restaurants. Um, he always liked going to Cincinnati. He also told me at one point that his one big fear was dying alone in a hotel room. And that's exactly what happened to Don Drysdale in a hotel room in Montreal. And uh, I think that made an impression on Scully. And a few years after that is when Scully stopped traveling as much. He only traveled to West Coast teams. Uh, he didn't travel to the East Coast or the Central. He didn't go to Cincinnati anymore. Um, but uh, there was one trip. I remember we opened the season in Montreal. Ugh. This is a terrible ballpark. They had 50,000 people for opening night and 2,000 people for night two, and I think 2,000 people was the second highest attendance of the year for them. It was just awful. But the great thing about Olympic Stadium was that a subway line went right to it. And our hotel was strategically almost across the street from a subway stop. So to get to and from Olympic Stadium, instead of taking the team bus, you just get on the subway and 15 minutes later, you're right there at the ballpark. And uh, one night I was leaving with Vin and, uh, and I said to him, so how do you get back? And he goes, well, the subway. So we took the subway, and it was so interesting because you had a pretty full car. And again, this is Montreal, but Scully does have some national presence. And I would say there was 20 people in the car, along with me and Vin, just sitting there. And most of them had no idea who he was. But there were like three or four people that were like squinting and staring and like, is this Vin Scully riding on our subway? And that was Vin. Yeah. He grew up in New York and he would ride subways. Uh, that was no big deal to him. So we finished the series in Montreal, and now we fly back to the United States. We're going to play the Mets, a weekend series against the New York Mets. And normally you have a charter flight. You arrive at the airport. Buses pick you up, whisk you off to the airport. You get your room key. You go up to your room, and an hour later, a bellboy knocks on the door with your bags. But when you return from Canada... You have to go through customs just like everybody else. So we had a night game in Montreal, 
and we flew into Newark. We got to Newark Airport probably around 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And by this point, Scully is 73, 74, something like that. And it's 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and now we have to wait at the uh, baggage claim area and grab our bags from the carousel, and we have to roll them down five miles of hallways to get to the inspectors. And Scully was in front of me, and Scully goes to the inspector, and they were like checking him out and wanted to see ID. And I was like, this Vince Scully, do you guys not know who Vince Scully is? Well, they had to check his ID. Oh, it was another time when we were flying. This was a few years later. Uh, this was after 9-11. And we were flying to Colorado from Los Angeles. And the security for ball clubs was a lot more lax than it was for the general public. And, of course, we had a charter flight. So we had to, like, empty our pockets and stuff, and then we grabbed our stuff and got on the plane. It was much easier. But they had to randomly choose somebody to, like, really scan them and all. And I remember this one time they scanned Vin Scully. So he's standing out there with his arms outstretched, and they have the wand, and, you know, they're going around and making him, you know, take off his belt and everything. You know, like, yeah, Vin Scully is is a terrorist. So we go to New York. We play Friday and Saturday. It snows on Saturday night. Sunday morning, we get up, and I go to the ballpark early. I get there at like 9 o'clock, and Vinny also went to the ballpark early. We got to Shea Stadium, and it's Christmas morning. The field is just a blanket of white. It's a fucking winter wonderland. No game, obviously. Well, the team is not going to arrive until like 11 o'clock in the morning. So Vinny and I went up to the press lounge and I basically had a one-to-one audience with Vin Scully for two and a half hours. It was one of the great days of my life. We talked about baseball. We talked about the Coliseum. Um, we talked about, I remember one thing, we were talking about doubleheaders. And I said, here's one that I'm sure you don't remember. But it was 1962, and I was on a family trip, and we were coming back from Las Vegas. We didn't have air conditioning. We had a 1960 Comet, and we didn't have air conditioning. It was hot as hell, and we're stopping Baker and Barstow and everywhere we can for more ice and drinks and melted popsicles. Uh, But we're listening to a doubleheader. It was the Dodgers and the then Colt 45s, the Houston Colt 45s from Houston. And Scully was talking about how incredibly hot it was there and how at the end of the first game, 
uh, Drysdale was pitching, went into the clubhouse and took off his shoe and just like water poured out of his shoe. And so I said to Scully, God, I just had such a, a firm memory of that game because of how hot it was and we were trapped in a hot car. And he said, oh, I remember that doubleheader distinctly. He said, back in those days, this was before the Astrodome, they played in an old minor league stadium. And for the press box, for the broadcasting booths, they were just basically cordoned off with wooden slats. He said, so there was no ventilation at all. And he said, beyond center field was just fields. And he said, during the first game, they had crop dusters in those fields spraying DDT. This was back in 1962. And he said, by the second game, the breeze had blown the DDT like into the ballpark. And he said, and there was like this sickening, sweet smell and taste in your mouth. And he said, at one point, he said, a guy hit the ball to the outfield, to left field, and I looked up and saw four balls. <laughs> and he said, it was one of the scariest games I ever had to call because I just, I couldn't see the ball. Uh, it was like so hard to concentrate. I had to really watch the fielders and umpires and figure out what was going on. But I was thinking to myself, it'd be unbelievable. You know, I'm a kid and I'm listening to this doubleheader and someday Vince Scully is going to describe what it was like on his end of that doubleheader. That was really amazing. Um, we talked about uh, his love of music. He was a good friend of Nat King Cole. He said, one time we were up in San Francisco, and it was a Friday night game, and we get back to the room and I get a call from uh, Nat King Cole, who's also staying in the same hotel. And he said, I just recorded a new album. I have a tape of it. Want to come up and listen? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And he said, so there I am at 1230 in the morning, just sitting with Nat King Cole, listening to his new album. Um, that was a, a pretty cool story. Now, not everybody was a Vince Scully fan. And I go back to that same road trip. So after Shea Stadium, we fly to San Francisco, and it's the opening of their new ballpark. Now it's Oracle Field or whatever. It was Pac Bell Field. God knows what the names of these stupid stadiums are. They keep changing. Anyway, it was the the new San Francisco Stadium. And it was like the third night. And most press boxes hang underneath a tier. But in San Francisco and at City Field in New York, it's the same thing where um, it's it's just above the concourse, like about eight, nine feet. So the game is over, and I'm in the booth with Scully, and he's uh, packing up all of his stuff. 
and a guy is down on the concourse, and he yells up, Vin! Vin Scully! Vin Scully! And Scully leans over and waves at him. And the guy goes, Vin Scully, you're a cocksucker. Well, I don't have to tell you, I fell over laughing. (laughs) And Scully just kind of, you know, rolled his eyes and went back to the booth. And I said to him, you probably haven't heard that since the polo grounds. But, uh, yeah, not everybody (laughs) was a huge fan. Uh, When I was doing Dodger Talk in the uh, late aughts, like I said, 2008 through 2010, Scully was always at the ballpark like around 2.30 in the afternoon. I would get there at 3, and, uh, you know, I never beat him. He was was always there. And, you know, and I would pop in and, and just say hello and you know, chat for a minute or two. Not that much was was going on. Um, <laughs> I remember listening. Uh, I, I got a tape. At the time, you could order these tapes from the Internet, cassettes of old radio broadcasts. So I bought a Dodger Cub game from Wrigley Field from like 1967, I was listening to it in the car driving to Dodger Stadium that day. And there was one moment where Ron Fairley hits a long drive down the left field line, and Scully's calling it, you know, it's a long drive down the left field line. If it's fair, it's gone. It is foul. And I like, shit, and I slam the um, steering wheel. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. This is a 50-year-old game. What am I doing? So I laughed about that, and I uh, I went to Scully when I got to the stadium, and I told him that story. <laughs> I said, you, you had me so into the game that I slammed my steering wheel when Ron Fairley hit a foul ball. And Scully laughed, and he goes, oh, I so hope we won. He had great recall. There would be a play, and he would go, well, this reminds me when I was in Brooklyn. uh, We were at County Stadium, Milwaukee, and Don Demeter hit a ground ball, and Joe Adcock did this, and Dick Grote did that, and Gus Bell did the other. and, um, And I went into him the next day and said, how do you remember that? And he said, if I had to recall it right now, I couldn't. He said, but I will see a play on the field, and it will trigger a memory. And I said to him, it's very impressive. I said, but how do we know you're right? (laughs) He laughed. He said, how do we know it was Don Demeter? It was Gus Bell. And he goes, you don't. And I said, look. It doesn't matter. It's just so much fun to hear those names. And I bet you 90% of the time you are right. Um, here's, a, here's another story that I like to tell about Vince Scully. And um, I see this podcast is getting long. I don't care. This is going to be a long podcast. 
So again, I'm driving to Dodger Stadium to do Dodger Talk, and and I hear about a play that happened in a game that evening in Toronto. And Gabe Kapler, now the giant manager, but at the time he was playing for some team in the American League, was at first base, and a guy hit a home run, and as Kapler rounds second, he trips and falls and, like, breaks his ankle. Now, the guy who hit the home run, if you pass a player, you're out. So he is now just standing there, and there's the question of what happens? Can you bring in a pinch runner in the middle of a play? And the umpires, like, all conferred, and this was, like, about a 10-, 15-minute thing, and eventually they ruled that you can bring in another player. And so uh, Kapler was removed, another player came in, and they completed the play for the two-run home run. So I go to the booth that night, and I said to Scully, um, did you hear about the play in Toronto tonight? And he goes, no. And I described it for him. And he goes, hmm. I said, have you ever seen that play? And he goes, no. I've never seen it. All the years, I've never seen that play. I said, how do you think they ruled it? Without missing a beat, he said, well, if a player is injured on the base pads, then you are allowed to bring in a pinch runner. (laughs) I was like flabbergasted. It's like, this is a rule that he has never seen enforced in 60-some-odd years, and yet he knew it instantly. That was the kind of thing that Scully could do. He could also read lips, which was amazing, because there would be an argument down on the field, and Scully would say, and now Lasorda is saying this, and now the umpire is saying that, and Lasorda is saying, well, check the base and the umpire is saying I don't need to and uh, how he did that I I, I do not know Um, another example of how great he was with the fans this was oh like about 2010 so Scully is now like 83 and we were coming back from Phoenix Sunday night spring training game Scully was tired. He was flying commercial. So was I. We were on the same flight, and he's got his roller bag. It's 9.30 at night. And you get to LAX, and once you get out of the restricted area, there is a section where people are waiting for passengers, for arriving passengers, and So we walk into that area, and everybody sees Vin Scully. There's like 15, 20 people. They all want pictures with him. They all want his autograph. Like I said, he was dead tired, and the man was like 83, 84 years old at the time. 
would have been so easy for Scully to go, look, folks, I love you all, but I'm dead tired. Uh, I, I really can't do that. He stayed, signed every autograph, and took every picture because that was Vin Scully. I got to do a game with him. I got to do a spring training game, and it turned out to be a TV game. Now, when there was a TV game, Scully did the first three innings simulcast, and then he did the last six innings alone on television, and then he went and tossed it to somebody else doing the radio. I figured it out, and I am one of only five play-by-play announcers in the history of Los Angeles Dodger baseball to that point, and probably still, to say that I broadcast a game on the Dodger radio network with Finn Scully. It's Jerry Doggett, Ross Porter, uh, Don Drysdale, Charlie Steiner, uh, and me. (laughs) That was like the greatest day of my broadcasting career. And I still have the tape of Vin Scully tossing it to me. Um, My other favorite moment was during the National League Championship Series 2000 and I think 10, maybe 9, I think 2010. Dodgers lost, but uh, we got to do Dodger talk from the stadium. Well, of course, they don't have a dedicated booth like they did for us at Dodger Stadium. So we would have to do Dodger talk from the the broadcast booth. And Scully normally didn't do radio only. He always just did TV. Uh, and when he did radio, he did it from the TV booth as a simulcast. But in this case, uh, there was no local television, and so Scully just did the radio. So uh, they said, uh, Vin, you got to move to the second row. They're going to do Dodger talk here for like the next 20 minutes. And Scully was like, oh, okay. So Scully is sitting in the second row of the press box right behind me. I'm sitting in his space, which is like, you know, oh, my God, you know, (laughs) it's like sitting in the president's chair in the Oval Office. This president, not the last one. Uh, And I said something funny. I don't remember what. But I could hear Vince Scully cracking up. And I thought, oh, my God. I actually made Vin Scully laugh. This was like one of the highlights of my comedy career. Um, Once he retired, I would call him every few months just to chat about things, see how he was doing. Wanted to take him out to lunch, but his wife Sandy at the time uh, was going through ALS and he felt he needed to stay home 99% of the time. Um, And so I never got a chance to actually go to lunch with him. Um, But he was surrounded by grandchildren and children, and so there were a lot of people around. There was a home video that I found on YouTube of like 
a whole movie of batting practice at Yankee Stadium, like 1929. And you see Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and everybody just kind of hanging out. And I sent the link to Vinny. And Vinny writes me back and he goes, oh my God, I was two. <laughs> but it was just neat that I was able to, you know, maintain a relationship. Meanwhile, I just can't believe that he's gone. Uh, and a couple of days after his death, and, and I knew it was eminent. I knew that uh, he was on his last last legs. Um, but a few days after he had passed away, I was on a family vacation with with everybody up in Santa Barbara. And I found on YouTube a tape, a broadcast, a radio broadcast that Scully did. It was the final game of the 1966 season. And the Dodgers, as usual, were battling the Giants for the pennant. And the Dodgers were in Philadelphia. The Giants were in Pittsburgh. And as Scully is calling the Dodger game through the Western Union ticker tape, (laughs) <laughs> How many people remember Western Union ticker tape? Scully was also calling the Giant game. He was calling two games at once. And it was really remarkable. And I listened for a while, and then I hit pause because I figure, okay, it's like a two-hour broadcast. I'm not going to sit here all day. And I went downstairs, and I um, I encountered my son, Matt, who is a longtime baseball fan. And I said, I'm sending you the link to this. It's really great. It's Vince Scully at his best. And as I was describing to him just what I was describing to you, it's like the finality of Vince Scully being gone forever just kind of hit me and sort of surprised, but I just got very choked up. I got choked up to where I, I like, couldn't continue the explanation. Um, and I have not been able to listen to the rest of that broadcast because I just know I'll cry. I'll listen to five minutes of it and I will just start to cry. Someday I'll be able to listen to it, but but not now. And uh, those are my sort of scattered um, thoughts on Vin Scully. Again, uh, this is probably my longest uh, podcast, and so I apologize if uh, you're on the treadmill a lot longer than you normally would be. But um, it's just from the heart, my love of Vin Scully. I wanted to share stories that you don't hear on all of the other tributes. Okay, so that'll do it for this week of Hollywood and Levine. I was able to get through this. I'm very proud of myself. I was able to get through the entire podcast without uh, breaking down, without having to... uh, stop the recording, and uh, take a few deep breaths. Anyway, our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. Uh, you can reach me via email, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. 
That's HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. I'm on Twitter at Ken Levine. I'm on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where I showcase a lot of my cartoons. So if you want to see some of my New Yorker cartoons and cartoons that were rejected by the New Yorker, uh, go to my Instagram account and, um, and follow me, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you again next week. Now for more play-by-play, let's go to Ken Levine and Steve Lyons. ¶¶